Jerome Powell's Dilemma Two times monetary policy smashed stock markets. If you're worried about when the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates, join the crowd. With a limited number of ambiguous historical examples to guide them, rapidly shifting financial data, and new levels of financial complexity, the Federal Reserve must somehow thread a very fine needle. On one hand, Jerome Powell insists he's not even thinking about raising interest rates and rates will stay low for however long it takes. On the other hand, the combination of sky-high stock valuations, rising long bond yields, and warnings of serious inflation arriving earlier than expected by well-known economists like Larry Summers and Jeremy Grantham, are making markets jittery. Even though we are unlikely to see any big shift in policy in the near term, it is absolutely time to start asking tough questions and considering uncomfortable what-if scenarios. The first rule is to keep an untroubled spirit. The second is to look things in the face and know them for what they are. Marcus Aurelius The hard truth is, no one has a crystal ball, not investors, not economists, and not the Federal Reserve. In fact, History demonstrates central banks' ability to time markets is often only a little better than investors' ability to time markets. Investors can lose a lot of money if they bet the wrong way but when central banks get monetary policy wrong, the economic repercussions can be disastrous. In this article, Why Central Banks Sometimes Get It Wrong Jerome Powell's Dilemma One-time monetary policy smashed stock markets, Japan's bubble economy. Another time monetary policy smashed stock markets, the housing bubble. Final thoughts. Why central banks sometimes get it wrong. Central banks are generally tasked with currency stability, maintaining low inflation, and attempting to achieve full employment. Trying to achieve all three things at once is not an easy task. Monetary policy is more of an art than a science and it is an art fraught with potential pitfalls. Central banks sometimes make bad timing decisions for a host of reasons. External reasons, war and natural disasters can make monetary policy timing considerably more difficult. Internal reasons, governmental mismanagement and mixed market signals all can throw a wrench into the process. Cut too soon and there could be a loss of confidence in the economy, causing a return to recession. Cut too late and the economy could overheat leading to a sharp rise in inflation. Both situations are terrible for the stock market, and unfortunately for investors, central banks around the world are currently dealing with a tricky combination of both internal and external pressures. 1. We remain in the middle of a natural disaster. Central banks around the world are focused on fighting off a potentially deep depression sparked by the COVID pandemic. Most central banks are zeroed in at the moment on keeping liquidity high to ensure financial systems don't freeze up the way they did in the wake of the 2008 Lehman shock. 2. Economic indicators are pointing in different directions. Oil prices and housing prices are rising quickly, which might indicate inflation pressure but on the other hand retail real estate looks in trouble. Cryptocurrencies are through the roof which might mean a loss of confidence in traditional currencies or it might mean there's too much liquidity or it might mean nothing. Growth stock multiples are very high in the technology sector but value stocks remain at record lows in relation to growth, 
which probably means much of the economy is still struggling far behind growth companies or it might mean too many dollars have crowded into too few growth companies. Fixed income yields are rising, an inflationary signal, and yet the price of gold, a traditional hedge against inflation, is falling. 3. Government policy is often at odds with central bank strategy. Take Turkey for an example. Erdogan has sacked two central bank governors in only the last couple of years. Financial experts in the country are unable to accomplish the impossible task of simultaneously achieving two opposing objectives. First, Erdogan wants to lower interest rates to stimulate the struggling economy. Second, economists must find a way to halt the 30% year-to-date plunge in the lira and reverse Turkey's high inflation, currently floating around a worrisome 12%. In an apparent attempt to appease Erdogan, the central bank governor raised rates much lower than markets expected, the lira tumbled in response, and the central bank governor was promptly fired. Jerome Powell's Dilemma Although hyperinflation is not a likely outcome in most first-world economies, the potential for something going pop in the stock market remains high. Jerome Powell has repeatedly asked Congress to pass and administer stimulus to the economy because the Federal Reserve clearly fears the economy could easily slide back into recession. Without an economy awash in cash, lending could slow, meaning even more businesses could go broke, and an already uncomfortably high unemployment rate could skyrocket. Powell clearly is still worried about the economy and wants to drive down unemployment before taking his foot off the gas. This makes sense. The Federal Reserve has the mandate to keep unemployment rates low. There's a good reason for that. If there are too many unemployed people, spending could slow. Slower spending could lead to slower growth or even a loss of confidence in the economy. This could lead to deflation and of course another stock market crash or prolonged bear market. It's been widely reported both people and businesses have been hoarding cash, partly because there are fewer things to spend money on during a pandemic and partly because sensible people are still worried about the health of the economy. If money isn't consistently injected into the economy to keep businesses afloat, salaries paid, and money circulating, it's completely possible the economy could fall temporarily into deflation. Deflation can be caused by a combination of different factors, including having a shortage of money in circulation, which increases the value of that money and, in turn, reduces prices, having more goods produced than there is demand for, which means businesses must decrease their prices to get people to buy those goods, not having enough money in circulation, which causes those with money to hold on to it instead of spending it, and having a decreased demand for goods overall, therefore decreasing spending. Investopedia. As much as we want to avoid deflation, there are also serious problems with out-of-control currency printing. If interest rates are held too low for too long and money printing is not supported by a corresponding growth in the output of goods and services, demand for the currency can fall. This causes the currency to lose value in relation to other world currencies, causing the cost of goods to increase, and there you have it, runaway inflation. Should inflation take a powerful hold on the economy, the only way to increase confidence in the currency is to increase interest rates. If interest rates aren't raised promptly enough, inflation continues. If interest rates climb too quickly or if real asset prices have too far outpaced the real economy when interest rates start to climb, the outcome can be a disaster for the stock market.
This exact scenario has played out a number of times in history. Japan's bubble economy. Although probably more famous for falling into and out of deflation for years, Japan's multi decade economic woes were initially caused by excessively loose monetary policy. Many economists believe the bubble finally popped because the Bank of Japan failed to raise interest rates early enough and had to raise interbank lending rates too quickly in an attempt to deflate speculation and tamp down inflation. In the mid 80s, Japan had struggled with a high yen. The US had previously claimed Japan was keeping the yen artificially low and so the Bank of Japan agreed to allow the yen to rise in value. Naturally, the strength of Japan's currency made Japanese exports more expensive and this, in turn, started seriously hurting Japan's export-driven economy. Japan fell into a recession in 1985-86. To counter the problem, Japan sharply lowered interest rates. The much looser monetary policy had the effect Japan was looking for. The yen dropped in value and the economy pulled out of recession. In only a couple of years, the Bank of Japan considered tightening monetary policy to stop the economy from overheating. Unfortunately, in 1987, the world experienced Black Monday. Although it's still debated exactly what caused the mass sell-off, the shock of the event caused the Bank of Japan to rethink its monetary tightening policy. After all, the Japanese economy had only escaped a short recession a couple of years earlier. In a rather unfortunate turn of events, the decision to delay tightening led to price destabilization and ultimately to a serious stock market and real estate bubble. By the height of the bubble, the land in Greater Tokyo was worth four times the value of the entire United States. Japanese companies were so flush with cash they started a buying spree overseas. Japanese companies bought U.S. skyscrapers, golf courses, movie studios, and even landmark buildings like Rockefeller Center. The Bank of Japan started raising rates to slow inflation in May of 1989 but by that point, it was too late. The markets finally realized the party was over and everyone headed for the exits. The Nikkei crashed and real estate prices, particularly in the major cities, eventually fell to fractions of what they sold for in the height of the bubble. The long-term effects of the bubble economy have been long-lasting and severe. Japan has fallen into and out of deflation for decades. Ultimately, this has contributed to the once-feared Japanese economy slipping from being the second-largest to the third-largest economy in the world. The Housing Bubble Coming out of the 2001-2002 recession, the Federal Reserve slashed interest rates in an attempt to jumpstart the economy. Although I don't exactly remember the timing, maybe 2004 or 2005, I distinctly remember seeing youngish investors being interviewed on the news. They were talking about how they were done with the stock market and were making a ton of money flipping and renting real estate instead. Mortgage rates were low and lending standards were loosened. Anyone who wanted a mortgage was able to get a mortgage, even if their financial situations or credit history fell far short of the perfect client. These deals were somewhat cleverly referred to as subprime mortgages. According to The Economist, house price appreciation during the housing crisis outpaced Japanese housing appreciation during Japan's bubble economy years. The price of the condominium I purchased in Vancouver in 2003 was still more than double in value by the time I sold it in 2009, Canadian real estate did not suffer the losses experienced in much of the US.
By the height of the bubble, there were bidding wars where multiple buyers placed purchase bids sometimes far exceeding the asking price to ensure they would be selected as the buyer of the property. Throughout 2005 and 2006, the chief economist of Freddie Mac didn't think prices were too high and insisted there was no nationwide bubble. Sure, prices were a little frothy in high-demand areas, but this was no reason to panic. Even former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan went on record insisting there were only pockets of overpriced real estate. Only by 2007 did Greenspan admit there was a bubble in real estate and that all the froth bubbles add up to an aggregate bubble. Curiously, Greenspan was against regulating the derivatives market and was very supportive of the subprime lending industry. Perhaps Greenspan thought spreading these risky loans throughout the derivatives market was a suitable trade-off for the economic benefits the housing boom brought to the economy. After all, the US had experienced a terrible stock market crash in 2000 and many economists believe a much deeper subsequent recession was avoided by the explosion of jobs created by the housing boom. Ultimately Greenspan decided to keep monetary policy too loose for too long. Hordes of low credit score customers who should have never been lured into the housing market finally started taking a toll on housing prices as some of them failed to make payments and were foreclosed on. National home sales and prices both fell dramatically in March 2007 as foreclosures rose. The more houses that were foreclosed on, the more it drove down prices. As housing prices continued to fall, some homeowners, realizing their mortgages far exceeded the market value of their homes, refused to make any more payments to banks and opted to walk away instead. Finally, all those foreclosed mortgages that had been bundled up by banks and sold off to investors as low-risk investments started to suffer. As it slowly became clear the number of foreclosures was rapidly rising, investors finally understood the mortgage-backed securities they had purchased were garbage. A fire sale of mortgage-backed securities, a collapse of the derivatives market, and a banking crisis ensued, ultimately leading to the Great Recession. Final Thoughts Most historians will tell you the true causes of major stock market crashes and recessions are never completely understood. There are theories, there are beliefs, and there's a lot of guesswork. Even though central banks have the benefit of history to guide them, any modern-day monetary policy decisions are not based on absolute, unwavering facts. Adding to the problem, economies continue to develop and become ever more complex. Economics gets more complicated with the introduction of new financial products, more complex international trade, and now derivatives and decentralized currencies. This means there is always still a significant risk something could be overlooked and things can quickly unravel as they did in 2008 or in 2000, or in 1990, or in 1929. I guess the biggest question I have is, why does Powell continue to have the accelerator pinned to the floor when there's a more than zero chance of redlining the economy? Furthermore, why is he asking Congress to push the nitro button and inject trillions more in stimulus money? Probably to avoid a Japan-style liquidity trap. Powell is more afraid of the economy losing momentum than he is of blowing a gasket before getting to the top of the hill. From Powell's vantage point, he must believe that if the economy doesn't continue its steady recovery, there are no good options left. Let's all hope he gets the timing right. Stay calm, stay vigilant, diversify, rebalance. Disclosure, I have no positions in any of the companies referenced in this article.
please seek professional advice before making any investment decisions.